right, everybody grab a seat. Make your way back to your seat. Welcome to H2O. Go ahead and grab a seat. We'll get started here. Hey, welcome, everybody. How are you guys doing? Let's try that again. How are you guys doing? I'm excited. Uh, a few people have asked me why I'm not wearing a sling. Uh, I got to confess, the real reason is not because the doctor has said you're done. Um, that's two weeks away. My wife is working. So that's the real reason. So, hey, before I jump into teaching, uh, we've got some fun things going on in our family that I just want to celebrate with you, if you don't mind. First of all, my daughter, Kara, has graduated from flight attendant school. She's legit. So if you ever fly, fly United, right? Because that's who she works for. Uh, so we're going to be going on a road trip. I'll be driving Kara on Wednesday. We'll be driving together up to Washington, D.C. and listening to my music the whole way there, right? So that's what's going on with uh, Kara. Another daughter, Caitlin, my oldest. Caitlin is getting, isn't that a beautiful picture? I mean, that's all Jana. So anyway... Uh, Caitlin is getting married this summer, but we're having a gathering where we're going to meet the parents. So after I go on the road trip, I'm flying over to South Carolina to meet Roddy's parents. So that's a fun thing. And the last thing that we're, we're going to celebrate this morning uh, with my family, it has to do with Caleb. Now, technically, I'm supposed to ask my kids before I show a picture of them, but he was asleep. So um, anyway, Caleb, as you may know, it has been raising financial support to be an intern with H2O, and he is finished. So round of applause. I apologize to Emily and to my wife, Jana, for not celebrating you this morning. We have other things at future times. So, um, but Emily will be in the teaching, so keep your head up here. Uh, just to orient you, in case you're new, in this series called Creed, we're talking about what Christians believe. And as Jim shared, this morning we're going to talk about the incarnation. That is, the deity of Jesus, that he is God, the humanity of Jesus, that he is human, that is, he is the God-man. I hope to impart this morning what is beautiful to me about that. But this is a hard talk to give, and i got to admit it is, because a number of reasons. First of all, if you're new with this this morning, I'm going to lay some pretty heavy theology on you. And you probably have not heard the phrase hypostatic union before, and you may be tempted to wonder, well, how is this relevant? I hope to make this, the deity and humanity of Jesus, relevant. But there is some thick theology for those of you that have been part of H2O for a long time, it's hard to talk about this topic to you also, because we speak about this every year at Christmas. Every single year we talk about the incarnation of Jesus, and there's only so many ways to make this unique, right? So today's talk, in my mind, is like we're climbing this mountain. We're climbing this difficult mountain. There is some difficult theology but we're going to get to the top. And for me, the incarnation of Jesus is a beautiful, spectacular view 
that has changed my life. And there on top of the mountain, there's this little rock, this simple, unattractive rock that we can turn over and find a treasure that is there. And that is a specific scripture that I bet nobody here has as their fave. So that's where we're going to go in this talk. Let's look at some scripture here from the Old Testament. Before we look at this, I want to give you some background music. Last week we talked about the fall of man, Adam and Eve in the garden. Deceived by the serpent, the world becomes fallen as humanity rebels and says, we're going to decide for ourselves right from wrong. We want to disconnect from you, God. And sin entered the world, leading to the fallen, broken world that we live in. So let's look at Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is God speaking to the serpent. And the first thing that I want you to be clear on is God is not saying that from now on, y'all are going to be scared of snakes. That's not what this is saying. It is not saying, this is not a prophecy that one day somebody is going to walk out into their backyard and step on a snake. That's not what it's saying. It's a little deeper than this. So God is speaking not to a literal serpent, but to Satan here. He says, I will put enmity, which is hatred, which is war, between Satan and humanity. There is going to be this conflict where we are going to be tempted to follow Adam, Adam and Eve's footsteps and live life independently from God. But I want you to notice what it says here. He will crush your head. There's a descendant of Eve, a human being, who's going to come along, who's going to enter into mortal com combat with Satan, who will be struck on his heel, a foreshadowing of crucifixion, right here in the book of Genesis an allusion to Jesus' death, and through his death, Jesus the Messiah will crush the head of Satan and set us free. So I want you to see this here. As we begin to unpack incarnation, the first thing that we can see is it was predicted. It was predicted. Just as the world had fallen and become dark, there's this glimmer of hope. As if God says to Satan, no, not today. I am going to bring about redemption. I want you to think about the nature of God here. How do you respond to being offended? If somebody was to just cuss you out, what would your response to that be? Right here, as humanity has said, we don't want your way, God, and the world has become fallen, God is offended and indignant and responds by saying, but I will come and save you and defeat all the darkness that is going to happen. It's pretty cool. Isaiah chapter 7. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. 700 years before Jesus came to this earth, the prophet Isaiah said the Messiah will be a human being. He will be a son he will be virgin born, and we will refer to him. We will look at him 
from this time forth as being God with us, God on our side. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us. Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Again, the Messiah will be a human being, and the government will be on his shoulders. There will be a kingdom. There is now a king. The Messiah will run the world, is what Isaiah is saying. The government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. As he is our king, he will speak to us. He will direct our lives through the Holy Spirit in his direction, his commandments, his counsel will be wonderful, and he will himself be mighty, mighty God. So here, before we go any further, I just want you to see that the Old Testament, 700 years before Jesus came along, referred to the incarnation, the coming of Jesus, and called this human being that was the calm, and it called him God everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, that he would bring peace to our lives. Here as we begin to look at the New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they all describe the incarnation in a different way. Mark, for some reason, just skips it. It's like, let's just get to Jesus' ministry, and it just skips over the birth. Matthew takes a lot of time talking about these prophecies that I've shared with you. Luke instead focuses on Jesus' mom, Mary, because he interviewed Mary. And John takes an entirely different tack. John says this at the beginning of his gospel, in the beginning. So before John unpacks who Jesus is and what the incarnation is all about, he takes us back to the very beginning. These are the first three words of the Bible in Genesis, in the beginning. In other words, John is saying that the person I'm about to tell you about is uncreated. He's always been here. So John was brought up in Greek culture. The Romans had taken control of the world, but Greek culture reigned. And so people spoke Koine Greek. They paid attention to Greek philosophy. And one of the philosophical thoughts was called the Logos. As Greeks looked up at the stars and they looked at life, they contemplated life and they saw a beauty, an order, a design to the universe. And they called that explanation for the world the Logos. And so John, as he's about to introduce Jesus to us, he takes a word from Greek philosophy, the logos, the thing that runs the universe, and he says, essentially, well, that's Jesus. John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, the logos, and the word, the logos, was with God. So, Jesus did not just begin to exist when he was born in a stable in Bethlehem. The second person of the Trinity is infinite, uncreated, and has always been with God the Father in a relationship. And the word was God. That God the Father is, of course, God, and God the Son also is completely God, uncreated, and existent through all eternity. 
Verse 14, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we've seen his glory. John is trying to explain an inexplicable thing. How does God take on human skin? He says the thing that runs the universe came down and was born in a stable and has a name. 1 John 1, 1. He begins with the same thing. That which was from the beginning, the eternal, uncreated, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, we've looked at with our hands and we've touched, we proclaim this to you. It's as if John is saying, in the life of Jesus, I've seen God with my own eyes. I've, I've touched God. I've heard God speak. John seems overwhelmed by the incarnation. And throughout John's gospel, again and again and again, he repeats this theme. John 5. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but because he, Jesus, was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, there are some groups, some people... Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons who will deny that Jesus is God, they will call him the Son of God, as if there's God, and then the Son of God is lower than God. But that's not what the Scripture teaches. The Scripture teaches that to be the Son of God means you're equal to God. Do you see that in that Scripture? So my son, Caleb, is a heaver. And it's as if someone would have a conversation with Caleb and say, oh, you're a Heaver, the son of Heaver, so you're less than Mr. Heaver. That makes no sense. No, I'm fully Heaver. In fact, I can kick my dad's butt in basketball. I'm fully Heaver. That's John's point here. Sometimes, sometimes. John 8, the Jews answered him, answered Jesus, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Now, I doubt if any of us use this, but like Samaritan is the biggest diss anyone could use. It's like you're not even a true Jew. You're a half Jew. You're a Samaritan. And by the way, I think you're possessed by the devil. That's the context of this little argument that's going on. And here's how Jesus responds in verse 56. Your father Abraham, he goes back to Abraham, the father of the Jewish race. And he says, your father Abraham Rejoice at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, Abraham was 1,400 years before. They responded and said, you're not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you've seen Abraham. Verse 58. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And let's just pause on this. That phrase, I am, is the actual name that God revealed himself as in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 3, God explained to Moses, call me, I am. And Jesus takes the name of God upon himself. At this, they picked up stones to stone him for the sin of blasphemy. But Jesus hid himself. John continues throughout his gospel, John 20. After Thomas, 
After the resurrection, Thomas sees Jesus for the first time, and he says, my Lord and my God. 1 John chapter 5. We also know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we're in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Guys, when I first became a Christian, and I heard that Jesus was God, and I began to study this out, I was blown away at verse after verse after verse after verse. It's like the whole world of early Christianity was crystal clear that Jesus is fully God. It's not just John that wrote this way, but the rest of the writers of the New Testament, Paul, in Romans 9, next verse. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced a human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Next verse. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Next verse. Now, this is the book of Hebrews, and this is a conversation between God and a number of different beings. To which of the angels did God ever say, you're my son, today I've become your father? The answer is nobody. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Next verse. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, that is Jesus, he says, let all the angels worship him. Worshiping anyone but God is strictly against the Old Testament law. Verse 7, in speaking of the angels, he says, God makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. Verse 8, but about the Son, he, God, says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. God himself refers to Jesus as God. Now, I know some of you love theology, like a few of you, two of you, like one other person to me. And, uh, and a lot of people think theology is like boring and, and, and not all that important. And I just want to argue that really having a clarity on who Jesus is is paramount. Theology, bad theology is like looking at art, this beautiful like a Rembrandt, and seeing mud thrown across it. And Savannah, the art student, just gasped. Or it's like watching your favorite football team, like the great Ohio State Buckeyes. And then static fills the TV. It's like the image is marred. I can't see it. All right, let's just stick with the art as an example here. Listen, I want to stress this point not just so that you ever are swayed away from believing that Jesus is God. But today there's this idea that I can take Jesus as my Savior and I can kind of live my own life. And that's bad theology. That is horrible theology. C.S. Lewis said this. Next verse, please. Next up. Uh, go back one, if you don't mind, to liar, lunatic, Lord. Okay, Jesus... Jesus, C.S. Lewis said, Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or a lord. And his thinking is this. Jesus made such profound claims. It's like you either build your life on my words, or you are a fool, and your life will be destroyed. I mean, you, you kind of got to go all in one way or the other. 
Jesus said that our eternity depends on what we do with him. So he's either telling the truth or he's a liar, which makes him incredibly evil. He's either a liar or he's crazy, he's a lunatic, or he is actually the Lord. C.S. Lewis went on to say this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. Great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus intends, my friends, to be a fork in the road of your life. When you understand that he is God, your only sensible choice is to lay down your arms in full surrender, in full worship, in full mission to this one King of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. So let me introduce you to the fun phrase, the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union comes from Greek Hypostasis is person. Union is referring to Jesus having two natures. I have a human nature. Jesus had a human nature and a God nature, both. So the math of the incarnation is this. Christ was one person with two natures, divine and human, the God-man. Next slide, please. And what we need to understand about this is he became what he wasn't, a man, while never ceasing to be what he was, God the Son. So the bad theology that I want us to be clear on, bad theology is thinking that he was not God. When we understand the hypostatic union, it's like he was fully God and he was fully man. I know a lot of people that have, it's almost like they have God and Jesus separated. It's like, Jesus I love, you know, he's so compassionate and kind and has the little lamb around his neck and he says all nice things and like God the Father is a little, little shadowy to me. I look at the Old Testament and I'm kind of bothered and I see two different gods. And in the incarnation, what's supposed to happen is that our feelings, our feelings toward God the Father are meant to be healed by the compassion and the beauty of the incarnation of what we see in Jesus. Philippians 2. Many of us are, have heard this many different times. This is a familiar scripture to us. And I just want to read this to you again. 
Christ Jesus, who although he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He's up in heaven as God, and he says, I'm not going to hold on to all the privilege and all the honor of being worshipped here. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The point is God took on human skin for us. Here's what this does for me. I can know that God himself, God the Father, loves me, thinks about me, came for me, pursued me, embraces me, because that's what I see in the person of Jesus. When I shared this with a friend of mine, his eyes were opened, and I love what he said. He said, I feel like I'm smiling from the inside out. That's the impact of this. So why does this matter? Why does this topic matter to me? First of all, for our salvation, I want every person in this room to be 100% confident about where they stand with our great God. And I want to show you this diagram here. This diagram is like, imagine all humanity is walking on the road of life. We're all walking through life together. We've all got different stories. But at one point, hopefully, we hear about the cross poetically visualized in a yield sign here. So we're all walking through life, and hopefully we hear about Jesus. Some people reject Jesus, maybe because they've experienced some abuse. They've been a victim, or they look out at the world, and they can't understand how there can be suffering in the world. But we've all met a person like that. It's like, I'm not interested. And they actually get further away from God and the scripture and churches. There's a second group of people who accept Christ as Savior, and yet I want you to notice that the road continues straight. There's no change in their life. There's no upward trajectory. They can't look at that. They can't look at their embrace of Jesus and say, Jesus has changed my life. Maybe they went through some church confirmation class or they taught something about Jesus when they were little. Maybe they prayed some sinner's prayer or, or there was an altar call and they walked up front and they made some shallow. Like, I remember for me going through church confirmation class. Every single one of us, like, do you accept Jesus Christ, your Lord? I accept Jesus Christ, my Lord. Do you accept you? I accept Jesus. Every single one of us, and I was totally lost. The third road represents a person who has come to understand the deity of Jesus, that he is Lord. And so our commitment to him is like marriage. You, know, like you can't casually date Jesus. And that's why the first commandment that Jesus gave after the resurrection is baptism. Like, we can't hide this thing. We've got to be out in public about it. And baptism is the opportunity for us to say, I, I'm all in. I, I believe. Imagine if I said to Jana, hey, you know, I'm into you, you're into me, and uh, let's kind of keep this on the DL, though, you know? We don't need to do any ceremony. Don't tell your friend. I mean, that would be so weird. And so Jesus is the fork in the road that asks us to respond to him. So salvation, the second thing is our mission. The second thing is our mission. C.T. Studd said this. 
If Jesus Christ be God and he died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Jesus said to us, I want you to imagine Jesus looking at you right now. I want you to imagine Jesus locked on from his eyes to your eyes. He's risen from the dead. You know he is God, and he says this, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Man, how would you expect? It's like, man, what an incredible mission we have. What an awesome calling on our lives. So here, in two weeks when we celebrate Easter, this is an opportunity, first of all, for us to consider being baptized in the name of Jesus. And secondly, to invite all of our friends to join in our party, to join in our celebration of a God that so loved us, that he came for us, that God himself came for us. The third thing has to do with our sanity. It has to do with our sanity. We all know life is crazy, right? We all know that we're all going to go through hard times, and you're going to wonder what in the world is going on in my life. I have a good friend, a guy that's been, we've been friends for 30 years, John Draghi. Jim and I both knew him back from Bowling Green days. And John has terminal brain cancer. I mean, barring some divine miracle, John knows his end is coming. And John has responded by putting a video blog on his website, inviting the whole world to journey with him as he walks by faith with joy and not denial. And I look at that and I think, how can you do this, John? And John can do this because of this, this thing that I'm about to share with you, this understanding of who Jesus is. Early Christianity faced a false teaching called monophytism. And I think many people today are modern-day monophysites. <laughs> Some people believe that Jesus is God, but they don't fully embrace his humanity. So I talked about the first error being thinking that Jesus isn't fully God. The second error is thinking that Jesus isn't fully human. And I'm speaking to us right now. Have you ever thought this or, or heard this, that... Well, yeah, Jesus was tempted, but pff, how hard could it have been? He's God. It's common thinking to play down the suffering and the humanness of Jesus. So listen, he was born of a woman as a baby. He had poopy diapers. I hope it's not irreverent to say he passed gas. He was a human being. Every human being does. He didn't get an automatic download from God of all knowledge. He didn't say to his first grade teacher, well, actually you're wrong because I am God. That didn't happen. He grew in wisdom like every other human being because he was fully human. He had a mother that he loved. He had a father that he loved and learned to trade from. The dad said to the son, let me teach you how to be a carpenter. He got splinters. 
He had friends. He told jokes to his friends. A careful reading of the New Testament shows that he was actually funny. He gave his friends names. They went to parties together. He experienced sorrow, confusion. God the Son experienced confusion. He felt lonely. He felt abandoned. He felt depressed. So when I look at the God-man, Jesus, for me, I'm standing on top of this mountain with this beautiful view of what God has done for me. And there's this little rock that seems rather simple. But as I've turned it over, it's meant so much. And it's found in Hebrews. Verse 4. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with their weaknesses. We have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Verse 16. Let's just slow this down. I want to make sure you catch this. It's referring to Jesus as a human being, right? Did everyone catch that? He has been tempted in everything as a human being. He felt all of the things that we felt. And so in verse 16, look what it says. In light of Jesus' humanity, let's approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Can you connect those dots? That because Jesus became human and experienced everything that we've experienced, we have a God that is totally locked on to every word that comes out of our mouth. Every emotion. Okay, you wives are going to enjoy this part. Have you ever been in a conversation where you've noticed that the person's eyes are drifting and they're not locked on to you, okay? Or where you're using words and the person's kind of responding back to you, but you know, like, you're not really paying attention to me. Or the person is listening and can say the right answers, but it's like you, you have this feeling like you don't get me. You don't get the emotions, the feelings. So every wife right now is saying yes and is thinking about elbowing their husband. And every husband is thinking, can you repeat what you just said? Um, <laughs> it's just the way we are. So here's the point. Jesus, our high priest, took on human skin so that I can walk out of the doors of my house and talk to God with all pain and confusion and misunderstanding and what are you doing? And I pour my heart out to God. I bring all of my emotion to the God that knows me. I do not hide from him. I do not hide the ugly things in my heart. I bear my heart because he knows me. That's what it means for Jesus to be our high priest. I have to throw some 21 pilots at you. I do not know why I would go in front of you and hide my soul because you're the only one that knows 
You're the only one that knows. Jesus, the high priest. Okay, I talk about rap a lot, and I want to show you a rapper you probably don't know. So, anyone recognize this guy? I gave you a clue. I said it was a rapper. All right. Shai Lin is the guy's name. Shai Lin has the ability to rap theology. And he wrote a song called The Hypostatic Union. Who writes a song called The Hypostatic Union? And we discussed making this into a video and, and you following along. But the words are so beautiful, I decided I just want to close by reading them slowly with you. With no intention of rapping, to be clear. Yeah, aw. By faith we believe this amazing Jesus, who made Uranus and Venus, became a fetus. It's such a secret that few, if anybody, knew it. Months later, he's covered in amniotic fluid. <laughs> the subject of the Gospels, praise of the Apostles, armed with eye sockets, armpits, and nostrils? Who is this Jesus, God clothed in human weakness, super sweetness and peace for the true believers? See the one who never tires, knocked out sleeping. See the source of eternal joy, weeping. Which one can explain how the sun abundant with fame who made thunder and rain now has hunger pains. See the creator of water become thirsty on the cross when he saves from the slaughter the unworthy. My awe should be sky high and I ought to just cry, why? With water in my eyes when the author of life dies. Raised on the third, God-man, soul-seeker, the hypostatic union, it gets no deeper. Why don't you stand with us as we begin to worship with song. And this morning, we're going to take communion together. So even as Carrie leads us in song, can you please approach the communion table, take a cup take a piece of bread, do not eat or drink, go back to your seat and we will participate in communion together in just a few moments, but proceed to the table at this time.
participating in the elements of communion which is also called the Eucharist and there's a Greek word Eucharisteo which means recognition of a gift received we have received a beautiful gift in the incarnation of Jesus whose body was broken and whose blood was spilt so please take up the Great God, we worship you. That you were not aloof and distant. It's not even appropriate to say that you loved us. You so loved us, according to John. You so loved us that you gave your son, the one you loved, who suffered all the difficulties of life. Thank you for that. Thank you that you knew from the beginning that you would die on a cross. Thank you, God, for that. Thank you, you knew every sin that we would ever commit, every betrayal, every turning away from you. You knew all of that and you still went to the cross and you still said, I want you. When your beard was plucked out, when you were spat upon by people that you had created, when you were mocked in your majesty, you were mocked as a crown of thorns was put on your head. And yet you said, no, I will claim my prize, my people. Thank you, great God. Thank you, God, for the incarnation. We come now to worship. We come to worship a Father who has loved us so deeply and known us so perfectly. We worship you now. 